here at the Win in Las Vegas for the Equity Derivatives Conference. And this time we get to sit down with one of my favorite people on the institutional side of the volatility hedging space, Ben Eifert of QBR. Ben, great, thank great you for joining you guys. us. Really appreciate you having me. Well, it, it, it is a challenge getting the time to sit down with you because you are crazy busy. Things have gone extraordinarily well for QBR for the past couple of years. You've grown spectacularly and one of the real success stories in the space. It just makes me incredibly happy because it is one of these good guys win sort of scenarios. Um, I mean, your partner, the good guys. But um, <laughs> the um, but you, I, I want to take us back to 2020 because that obviously was just an amazing year for you in particular. And you approached it slightly differently than many in the space, right? You went straight for the institutional grade product and the variant swap, as I understand it, at least. And But I don't know exactly. So maybe you could talk through a little bit with us about like what happened in 2020, what you saw. Are there any parts of the narrative that you think people missed, you know, as you're able to look back on it with hindsight? And, and again, one of the advantages, and I certainly felt this as well, you were hedged going into it. You were over, you know, you were the hedge effectively. So you were making money and are able to sit and maybe bring a little bit of perspective to it that those who are desperately trying to keep their heads above water were, were, were not able to do. So with that lead in, an extended lead in, what happened in 2020? Yeah, absolutely. You know, 2020 was a, was a pretty wild year. I think um, one key thing about 2020 is it had been a really long time since the market went down, vol went up, and then anything else happened besides just normalization in, right. in a couple of months, right? And I think when you have a long enough period of market history like that, where every dip gets bought straight away, every vol spike gets crushed straight away, you, know, you, you condition market participants to do some really scary things, right? And I think coming into March 2020, you know, the world was full of tail risk sellers and the world was full of people waiting on the sidelines for VIX to hit whatever their number was, 35 or 40 or something to go all in aggressively short volatility. You know, a couple things were true. So we came into 2020 uh, with some positions that were pretty defensive in the tails and that worked out really well. Uh, the things like, for example, um, long dated, very far out of the money downside in equity index had been crushed over the last several years before that from just endless structured product flow and no one buying on the other side of that um, to the point where you could hold effectively really deep out of the money convexity and you could do it in variance format, you could do it in you know long dated put versus, versus closer to the money format. You could do it in a lot of different ways that were really cost you very little or nothing to hold but that were just free or very cheap options on a huge market blow up. And, and that's the kind of thing where it seems crazy that that kind of thing should exist, right? Because if there's a really, really cheap hedge out there, like why isn't everybody just putting it on? But I think, you know, again, when you have this kind of a market where, you know, everybody who was inclined to be a hedger or a vol buyer, they all just went away <laughs> by, by, by 2020, right? There's um, a death by a thousand cuts. Death by a thousand cuts. Death, right. Yeah. Exactly. And actually, we saw a lot of really good marquee funds that would would be complementary long vol type exposures for, for their investors that went away after 2018 because a lot of investors were disappointed that 2018 felt like we finally got some volatility and a lot of those positions didn't deliver that well. You remember Q4 of 2018, where again, we sold off, but, but for various weird technical reasons, like SKU went down, convexity went down, vol didn't go up that much. And so the long vol community was kind of viewed as, hey, you guys really disappointed us here, mm -hmm. right? And so there just weren't buyers left of that stuff. So we did come into March of 2020 with, uh, with some positions that, that performed very, very well. That, that was about a third of the story for us. Um, but then the rest of the story was really, uh, to your point, if you're in a position of strength in March of 2020, the opportunities were incredible. One of the things that we were able to do very effectively, um, we, we run a variety of different strategies. You know, as you pointed out, they're kind of process-driven, repeatable approaches with a lot of, um, that are not fully systematic, but that, um, that have models associated with them that are immediately cluing you into what's going on. And look, this looks like a dislocation, you should look. One thing that we were noticing in late February, early March, was that while the, the VIX had hit about, we'll call it about 40 by March 1st, right? The market was off 12 or 13% off of its highs. The front month VIX future with only 10 or 11 trading days left to go was trading at 25. Mm -hmm. 
So there was a huge disconnect between where the tradable instrument for your average uh, you know, institution or retail investor, the VIX future was, and where you know, vol fundamentals were with incredible kind of positive carry to, yep. to volatility there. And the other thing that was true was, and we think a lot about how to measure the relative price of VIX futures as compared to S&P forward volatility in the surface and what that basis typically looks like and that VIX future was trading at like a crazy arbitrage level far cheaper than at the money forward ball, which it should never do. And ultimately what was happening was that ecosystem of market participants who say VIX is at 40, it never goes above 40, there's never another leg down, we're just showing up in huge size to sell, to sell uh, front month VIX calls especially. And there were a couple of extremely large institutional players who we knew who they were that were involved in that. And then there was you know, lots of retail trying to sell VIX CTPs. And essentially, the world was demanding liquidity at a stupid price for naive short volatility bets. Mm -hmm. And we were able to take advantage of that really well. Uh, we have effectively loaded up uh, on short dated VIX futures, uh, hedged just with long equity index delta, so just a beta hedge um, type of format. And as the market sold off and sold off and sold off, the volatility rose and rose and rose, you know, with this crazy level of carry in the curve. And then ultimately, a lot of the very big institutions that were aggressively trying to short VIX calls, during early March, they got liquidated in mid-March, and those auctions went up and you know, cleared at incredible levels. That was kind of the top peak of the volatility unwind. And then we were able to get out of those positions, get the other way, because the basis relationship totally flipped. So, it was kind of, and that was a driver of, of a lot of the rest. So really it was a combination of coming in with, with strength in the portfolio from convexity that was way too cheap, and then seeing kind of the market responding the same way it's always responded, really aggressively trying to short ball, setting up some really attractive positions through March. And so we saw two aspects of that, right? One was your, the dates that you're hitting on. People kind of forget that rates actually had outperformed as a hedge in the portfolio up to that point. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I think that then today is almost the exact opposite, right? But if you looked at a 60-40 portfolio going into that kind of March 6th, March 10th, I think was actually the day that I remember it breaking, um, on a portfolio that was long bonds, long equities, it actually was doing okay, right? And it actually did extraordinarily well over the next couple of days as the rates market effectively rallied super, super sharply, tens went to 33 basis points, and everything seemed like it was going to be totally copacetic. And then it flipped in the opposite direction, right? And rates basically rose 100 basis points in the span of six days, and it was that March 12th sort of event, right, where rates sold off in the opposite direction, and everybody who had hedged with rates suddenly found themselves way underwater, that that scramble for, oh my God, I need actual hedges, right? I need to buy this, this vol back, right? That in turn then kicked off the waterfall because if you think about those, you know, one of the ways I always just think about those is you're just recreating investment grade debt, right? You're basically taking the world's highest quality companies and you're saying, I will agree in advance to buy them if they're down 50%, right? In one form or another. And suddenly that actually shows up. And like everybody who says, oh yeah, I'm really happy to buy these things 50% down, it's not really that happy That's to right. buy them when it's down 50%, right. right? So you, you ended up seeing those two things. You ended up seeing the rate hedge blow up and people then had to seek out that direct hedge. What, what led you to flip out of those positions? What did you see that caused you to avoid saying, you know what, this is it, this is the end of the world. Um, you know, got to ride these positions. Yep, so for us, everything was in the price. So those positions were all relative value positions. So for example, you know, long in the VIX futures and long equity beta against it. And we were holding on to those positions as you still had this really steep inversion in the VIX term structure, as you still had the VIX complex too cheap relative to S&P. And then just over a course of a couple of days, that flipped from just to, to like, three times what you had ever seen at any point in history in terms of like a VIX term structure that was almost flat at 80, right. when you would normally obviously expect quite a lot of inversion at 80, and also where the basis of the VIX complex to the S&P complex uh, you know, went to 15 balls over, and that was the liquidation of PAR plus, it was the liquidation of the Allianz structured alpha fund, it was liquid, and, and so 
at that point, uh, that was, you know, now you're holding assets that did really, really well and are now priced at like basis relationships that are three times where you've ever seen them ever in history. And you say, okay, it's probably not the right time to still be holding onto those. And, and we did actually flip around the other way in that position. Not nearly as big as we had held the long position because the world was pretty scary and we were feeling pretty good at good and we needed to you know sink the ship. It's tough for a long ball fund to completely flip and be massively short ball, right? I mean that's just structurally your clients don't expect it. And two, you were already up I think seventy percent at that point, something ridiculous like that. So like the the reward to you know you can you can risk some of that to give it back, but your clients were counting on you effectively, and you delivered. So that's that's a yeah. good outcome. And I think people for, uh, often forget this because the whole ride was so wild. But the vol peaked I think it was two days before the bottom of the market, right? And that was those unwinds and those liquidations. The next couple of days, you actually had I'm going to forget the order, but it was like S and P down four percent. And ball down a lot, and then the next day, I think S and P down three percent or something, and ball down a lot, right? And that was the bottom of the market yeah. after the after the liquidations had been covered, after the hedges had been unwound, uh, which is again spot ball dynamics in that environment can get totally broken, right? Because at that point, uh, the pricing of ball was truly insane. It was the price you needed to clear this kind of you know short ball risk and forced liquidation auction at a very scary moment, mm -hmm. and at that point. I think it was it was tough to sustain. Yeah, and, and I think that's actually a really important point, right? When you say tough to sustain, this is a phrase I use all the time as it relates to volatility, right? Because people are right now would be a perfect example. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, the VIX is give or take 27, 28, right? Which is high, not insane, but that's a hard level to sustain, right? Because 28 is give or take 2% of all a day, right? 2% move per day. That's a lot. Right, we just we don't often experience that. And the other thing that we're seeing right now, we we uh, had a conversation with Chris Cole. The intraday vol is dwarfing the close close vol. Right. So the other day we had an experience where the markets were quote unquote unchanged after being up or down eight percent or up or down one percent eight separate times during the day. Right. I mean that's. It's the functional equivalent of running a marathon. You know, after you're like I'm going to go out for a light jog. Right. You know, it just Nobody is actually going to believe that, you know, the three hours you said you were, you know, out walking the dog or whatever, like you actually ran a marathon. But that is what effectively has been happening. It feels like this is, goes back to the dealer conversations, et cetera. Like they're trapped in a bit of what's referred to as this negative gamma positioning where they are forced to respond to the market because their delta hedge ratio has changed so rapidly. Right. And that's. That's where I do think, and so we're, this is kind of part of the conversation that we were having, and I'd love your thoughts on this. The role of dealer gamma becomes important when effectively the dealer's models force them to chase the market. They become pro-cyclical, and so you see a lot of this intraday volatility. You see very quick reaction functions on the hedging where they're saying, you know, the delta ratio, or the delta hedge ratio on this option position can change from 20% to 50% in a matter of minutes, right? We absolutely see that as we approach expiry. I'd love your reaction to that. I mean, is, am I mischaracterizing that or do you think? No, I think that's, I think that's right. So, you know, certainly the, the measurement and estimation of things like dealer gamma positioning, it's tricky, you know, you have to think about it. You're gonna have a range of models and a range of, uh, of probabilities. But I think when you look at this market today and you, you know, think back over the last seven, eight years, you know, something that we've you know, talked about a lot together, I think up until relatively recently, uh, the, the short dated flow in S&P options especially was really one way to sell to dealers and dealers were always kind of jammed with gamma, right? And it was basically the whole world slowly decided that call overwriting and cash secured put selling was a sensible like structural asset allocation within a pension fund portfolio and ultimately you know when i think derivatives traders think about that s&p options is a big part of is a big market but it's a niche derivatives market right this is not like cash equities you can't allocate 15% of pension fund assets to selling short dated s&p options right it's just completely insane and you saw that where the market was just choked on long gamma for so long. And the and way just, that- I'm sorry, just to, to very quickly make sure that the audience understands mm -hmm. what you're referring to. To generate yield in a world in which interest rates are incredibly low, you would see institutional players, insurance companies in particular, but other players as well, 
who would own the underlying individual securities or the S&P 500 and then would be selling relatively short data to call options on just a purely systematic basis. And so if you think about a strategy that, for example, sells weekly 1% out of the money call options on the S&P 500, you can do that 52 times. You're going to collect somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% every time you sell. Sometimes you're going to lose, sometimes you're going to win. But on net, theoretically, you could, if the market's unchanged, you could make 52% in a flat market, right? That's what you're referring to when you talk about providing that. Well, there's two different kinds though, because you have to go look at the systematic covered call seller, which is not really adding risk to the market versus the systematic straddle sellers from the hedge funds trying to reap that, that profit. And those people are basically you know, at, at, at a gamma risk. I don't think the covered call guys actually delta hedge, they, they lose the stock and they buy it back again probably. Yeah, it's in some sense, it's a time horizon thing. So the weekly or monthly call seller is effectively delta hedging on a weekly or monthly basis when they roll that position and they lock in the loss if it's a right. So they're exposed to volatility, but not on a daily basis, the way that like the gamma, the daily gamma hedger would be. I, mean, I don't want to distract you from, from, from a conversation that Mike's going at, but I, I, I'm kind of curious that, that in general for liquid assets, stocks, bonds, currencies, um, commodities, um, you'll see implied vols trade 8 to 12% over-realized over the long term. Points, points, not percent. Percent, yeah. Um, Percentage points. I just want to make sure that we're saying the, the same thing, right? So fix I'm saying, 12, I'm saying if vols 20, it'll trade at, at, at 22. Implied vols will be... Okay, so 10% is what you actually do mean. Yeah, okay. oh, that's what I meant, yep. And, um, and, and, and that, that's the insurance premium. That's why your, your, your systematic one-month vol sellers who dealt hedge every day at 2 o'clock or 4 o'clock, they're, they're reaping this insurance premium once in a while, take a big hit. Um, and, and they're making money, clearly, because they're still alive. You're a long vol person. How do you, I don't want you to give her the secret sauce, but how do you swim upstream against that flow of where implieds are, are always systematically a little over-realized, as they should be to capture the, the tail risk? I mean, that's why they trade over-realized. Yep, so we're, we're really absolute return relative value guys in our core, and so we're always looking for what's relatively cheap and what's really, relatively expensive. The thing that became somewhat new with the rise and continued growth of this kind of overwriting and underwriting flow is that short dated options used to be typically the most expensive part of, of the optionality complex. Theta was really high, and if you were to back test which all the pension expensive fund consultants did. Expensive relative to what? To realize or expensive like as in as in just the pure carry gamma? The, the carry gamma profile. So if, if, for example, you were to back test, which the pension fund consultants did going back to, you know, 1990, uh, selling systematically one-week options, one-month options, three-month options, six-month options, one-year options. I think AQR has, a, you know, some papers like this, right? You'll see that the, the best risk-reward option selling over a very long period of time was sort of short-dated, maybe slightly out-of-the-money puts, not crazy crash puts. And But what you saw happening then was as more and more and more assets came in to sell the front of the curve, you saw the S&P ter ball term structure steepen and steepen and steepen and steepen. And now instead of in a quiet market selling 13, they're selling 7, right? right. And that Gamma risk premium fell and fell and fell and fell. And actually, if you if you look at like on a trailing two-year basis, actually realized gamma risk premium in the S&P had more or less converged to zero even before March of 2020. So before like the big hit, it was just you weren't even getting paid to sell these options because there was way too much size in it. And then what you saw in March of 2020 was really terrible performance relative to owning the S&P of running a covered call or, or cash secured put strategy because what happened, you were selling this stuff at eight ball or something, you have the whole downside of the market for a whole month down 35%, you lock it in, you roll, you rally and face ripping rally and you're selling the calls, right? And so this, these strategies were pitched to institutions as, hey, this is like a defensive equity thing. You're not gonna make quite as much on the upside, but like you're gonna carry and it's gonna be protected a little on the downside because you're getting these premiums and then you look at the performance and you're like, you know, the market had gotten back to pre-COVID highs within, what was it, was it six months? Uh, no, yeah, even a little less than, less than that. The NASDAQ was above in a month and a half. That's right. And, but, the, but the option selling strategies took only just recently. Sort Almost, of uh, yeah, and, and I mean, this is, this is, it was astonishing to watch, right? Because, and this is one of the reasons why we talk about the dynamics of markets bottoming around options expiry, right? So 
it was the worst possible outcome where you had sold the call option, which just to remind people of the structure that leaves you with, if you are long the stock and you sell a call option, you've effectively just sold a put, right? Yeah. You take all the downside. You then had those options. So you sell these puts, the market collapses, you incur all the realized losses as your option hits expiry, right? You basically have to cough up all the change. And then you turn around and you sell Guess what? Elevated vol, you can now sell a three to five percent out of the money call option, and the market rallies 30%. Right? <laughs> so, like, you just get destroyed in that setting because you've, you've realized all the losses and then you don't get any of the recovery, right? That is that that, that dynamic was astonishing. And it, it had implications for a variety of strategies. A lot of gamma uh, scalping strategies really struggled in that environment as well because they were operating under a framework that said, if the market goes up, I should sell, right? I should I, I should effectively be willing to sell some of my call options. It just didn't work in part because the the market was so one direction at that point. Yeah, and uh, and what you finally then saw after that, it took a little while, but uh, the, you know what we see is the big pension fund allocations getting cut and cut and cut because they had built up at a lot of places a seven year, five year experience history yep. running these strategies in the new real world environment where everybody was running these strategies in big size and the returns were very dramatically different from the historical experience because again, you're selling eight ball, not 14. Right. Um, and that I think has, has really pushed risk premium back into the market, right? At the front end of the curve. Um, the, it's much more balanced, much more two-way flow. There's still sellers, there's still overriding programs, but there, you know, you think of some of the, the really big pension funds that are well known and, and outspoken about being in the space, I think about Hawaii, for example. Um, you know, they've cut those programs very materially. They still have small allocation, but it was very big. And what that has meant is, you know, to your point about, about the dealer positioning in this environment, that has taken a lot of that oversupply out of the market. Yep. And it has left the deal. So now this brings us back to this underlying point. So you had this huge amount of supply. Effectively, the dealers were constantly long gamma, right? that model flips itself into reverse where the dealers don't have that natural supply. We talked earlier, you and I in an offline conversation about the dynamics of if I have all these strategies and they're all selling single stock options, selling me single stock call options, I accumulate 35 of those, I basically have the S&P 500. So now I've got an S&P vol creation machine, right? And I can supply vol into the S&P market and sell that off. And, and this goes, you know, again, a statistic we were talking about earlier, if you looked at one month implied correlation in 2017, it bottomed, I think it's six, six and change, right? Today we're at 50, right? Which is just, you know, like that's an extraordinary move in any possible respect. But what was happening was you have all this giant supply of single stock vol. If I'm gonna convert it into an index and sell it off and, and try to sell that into a market in which there aren't a lot of buyers of volatility, the natural output is, is that the price of that index option gets depressed relative to the price of the single stocks. We call that low correlation, right? Now it's flipped in the opposite direction. We've got relatively expensive index ball. What do you think is going to happen with correlation here? I mean, it's priced at 50. Yep. This is, this is a huge loss of implied diversification benefits to the S&P 500. Yep. The correlation has been a really interesting market this year. Uh, and we think about it often in terms of the vol spread. So what's the weighted average component single name vol and how much higher is that than index? Gives you a little bit less of a directional uh, yeah. metric. And the the and what where's that realizing and then where's that implied? And just, just to make sure people understand what you're saying there. So you're effectively saying Apple is six percent weight in the S P five hundred. We're gonna take the Apple, put six percent on that, and we're gonna do the same thing with Microsoft, Google, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We run through the list. Whatever that number is, we compare that to the VIX, right? And we effectively get this isn't exactly how it's done, but you get effectively get a measure of correlation, a, a cheap version of correlation. That's right. So you might, it might be that the weighted average single name ball is 35 and the index is 25 and the spread is 10. And that spread over time isn't too directional. It can be higher or lower depending on whether single name ball is really outperforming index or not. And you know what we've seen is we've been in an environment where that realized spread has been quite high because you've got a combination of you know, factor rotation, sector rotation, dynamics under the hood just constantly churning, right? People think of, we've had a pretty good market sell-off here, um, but the some things, think of obviously not really as much S&P, but you think of frothy tech right. down. We, we use ARC all the time, arc just a shorthand for this, right? Right, ARC, you know, massively down, 
you know, energy up, materials up, lots of diversification happening under the surface, right? And that's really supporting index volatility delivering much lower than the kind of weighted average component single name. And then the other thing that you're seeing is, I think for a combination of, of a variety of different reasons, but you're seeing earnings moves on big companies that are just absolutely historically yeah. extraordinary. Facebook moving 30% on earnings, Netflix moving 40% on earnings, Amazon moving 17% on earnings. For the biggest companies, you know, trillion, you know, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap swinging around on what, you know, the number being a little higher or a little lower. And I, and I think that, the, you know, there's all manner of reasons for that, but those factors are really driving extraordinary realized single name volatility. Index, S&P's been moving, but to your point, one, it's been moving more intraday. There's been a lot of you know, sl sloppy you know, gamma hedging issues. And two, uh, we've really had, again, a lot of diversification within the index components. So we've had a choppy downward move where we've experienced a decent sized peak to trough correction, um, but much less realized vol than would be typically associated with some time period where the market was down 18%. Do you trade dispersion in your business? Mm-hmm, we do. Yeah, and um, dispersion's a, a great strategy for us. It's one where, uh, again, to your question about you know in institutional products. So in the old days, we used to trade dispersion using vol swaps with dealers. It was very convenient. Um, the world has really migrated in equities anyway, I think, where liquidity has moved out of OTC trades with dealers and towards uh, exchanges where you think of just what's happened to retail option trading and option trading volumes in the US, right? And so where we used to trade with comp out 10 banks and put on a big dispersion package, now we effectively have market making robots that are running 10,000 orders in high frequency constantly throughout the day. Basically, we're the market maker on the bid side for everything we want to buy and we're the market maker on the offer side for everything we want to sell subject to a tight risk constraints on Vega and, Vega and Delta and so forth and kind of just are constantly moving our dispersion portfolio in the direction that we want. So this point on dispersion and the, the wide range of outcomes that we've seen, usually you think about dispersion being high in low volatility environments, but we're seeing dispersion high in high volatility environments. What, what, what do you think is causing that? Is it just a market cap mismatch? Is it what's, What are the dynamics that you're seeing that are different than what we would have seen in 2017, for example, where everybody argued dispersion should be generating huge profits here, but it just didn't? Yeah, no, I think this is a, it's a great example, right? Because so 2017 was an environment with low volatility and a pretty low spread of single name over index. Basically nothing was moving anywhere, right? It wasn't just that there was lots of diversification at the index level, there was diversification at the index level, but also just nothing was moving at all, right? And there was massive amount of selling of short term single name vol, index vol. Whatever. It's kind of tough to get that 10 point spread when the absolute level of volatility is 12, right? right? Or, or realized four at some point. That's right. Yeah. So we were, you know, that the spread was running, say, five, six in, yeah. in 2017. Um, it's a, it's a real, so looking at the spread, I think, really clarifies some things. I think it shows you when you look back at different market environments that you can have high volatility high dispersion environments or and low volatility, low dispersion and both. There's kind of, you get all the quadrants, right? So when you think back to 2008, I think, you know, people uh, like to say things like in a crisis, all correlations go to one. But remember in 2008, I mean, we had days where, uh, so dispersion was phenomenally high. You had days where the banks were limit down and energy was limit up yep. and the market was, you know, swinging around wildly, right? And there was tremendous amount of, uh, in some ways similar to now, obviously a more right. extreme circumstance, right? Yeah. But you had these divergences between sectors that were enormous. And you had people betting on the inflation peak oil story at the same time you had people betting the financial system was about to fall apart. And right. It was the whole decoupling dynamic, right? right? It's, you know, China's gonna be totally fine. The commodities are the most important things out there. You had massive institutional investment in commodities in one form or another. And at the same time, you know, this is something I've talked about repeatedly, but like the tax on the world's consumer from that very high oil price was just creating conditions of absolute chaos in, in, in the real economy. Yeah, exactly. So that was a spectacularly high volatility and high dispersion environment. Then you walk forward a few years to the treasury debt downgrade, the European sovereign crisis, and really in a sense, everybody was just a macro trader, right? Everything was moving in lockstep. Implied correlations were hitting 90, 95. The vol spread, which means the vol spread was going extremely low, three points, yeah. four points, because basically everything's just moving together. And there you had a high vol, but very low dispersion, high correlation kind of environment. Well, now is your ideal environment. I and mean, there's a directionality to dispersion because of the difference in skews. 
So a slow grind down, is, it doesn't get better than that for you. Can you so, explain what you mean by that, actually? What, what, why is that skew dynamic important? Because the, the put-call skew for index is very different than for stocks, um, just because a, a, a stock can like, you know, drop 50% overnight. Uh, and usually when you quote the spread, we'll talk about the at the money, but the reality is when you execute the trade line by line, usually you strangles uh, on both. And therefore, the, the, the put call vol spread is different on the call side than the put side. And if you go, as the market goes down in price, that you compress on in. So you might put it on at a, at a 10, you know, uh, out of the money, but as, as you come on down, the at the money might go to eight. So you make money on that compression there. This is very wonky, so I'm sorry to talk about this stuff. I was curious, it seems to me that right now is a, we have a challenging time to go add to dispersion because um, uh, if, if we've seen the lows, if we slow grind back up again, that's, that's nuclear Armageddon for dispersion strategies and you give it all back. And it depends a little bit on, again, very wonky, it depends a little bit on how you hedge deltas. So when you think about any kind of, let's suppose for a second that you wanna think about and execute dispersion in a simple, clean way that really reflects the spread. Okay, the spread is 10. If the spread goes to 11, I feel like I should make a point. If the spread realizes 12 and I'm paying 10, I feel like I should make two points. If you want to approximate that behavior, you actually have to hedge your deltas not on a Black-Scholes, you have to hedge them on a skew delta where you effectively hedge out those relative slopes of the skew and all the components. And then you get this kind of behavior where it approximates just floating strike the way it would behave if you had ball swaps. And of course, well, and you, so, can, you can then run the, run the book, you know, delta flat, gamma flat, theta flat, yeah. big, I mean, if you pick your poison, which one you want to do, there's, 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 no, uh, there's no free lunch, that's for sure. But that is actually, so when you say that there's no free lunch, like it is actually important that you decide which variable you're gonna hedge on. And so to a certain extent, you're choosing the Greek to maximize against. But the second thing that I, I would, would hit on, and this is just extending on what Harley was saying, the same thing you're identifying when you talk about hedging out the different components of it, correlation by and large or skew is something that only emerges in the indices, right? There is a modestly higher price to hedge Apple 50% of the money than Apple at the money, but it doesn't even remotely resemble what you see in the S&P, for example, right? So the S&P at the money vol with the VIX quoting 25, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that it's 19. Yeah, right? it's 1920, right? Okay. Um, if I go 50% down, it's going to be conservatively, I'm guessing 62. Yeah, it depends on the time. Yeah. Um, and if I do the exact same thing with Apple, the at the money is going to be 35 and the 50% of the money may be 40, 42, right, would be my guess. And the difference between those is this correlation dynamic, right? For the S&P to fall 50%, basically every single stock has to fall, right? And so every, this is the correlations go to one dynamic. As you move through that process, as you get into the drawdowns, what you typically see is people start pricing that more and more and more. And we definitely are seeing that. But this is one of the reasons that I bring up this point that people use the phrase, the VIX is the fear index. Right. I don't think it's the fear index at all. I think correlation, implied correlation is the fear index. When you see people starting to say, I think the implied correlation is 50, 60, 70%, they're effectively saying there's nowhere for me to hide in the index. Yeah, right. I think that's totally right. I think a lot of people, you'll, you'll, you'll hear a lot of, well, why isn't the VIX doing X, Y, Z? And a lot of times the answer comes back to, look, it's, it's a short-dated gamma measure. It's going to be driven ultimately partly by supply and demand and fear, but a lot by what it's delivering, right? Because if the VIX is 80 and we're realizing 1% or 2% sell-off days, that it's just a massive money machine to be selling it, even though we're selling off in the market and people are going to do that and it's going to push the VIX down. But uh, it's really, you know, how do you know when, um, you know, wh when, when you still have a bunch of dispersion in the market, you've got pieces that are rallying, you've got pieces that are selling off, and index vol is trading kind of neutral-ish. People clearly aren't terrified, right? When they're well, terrified, they go buy S&P puts in the right, biggest size they can. And, they just, and they, just, they just walk away, right? And they have to do it. And again, part of what we're seeing right now, and this goes to, uh, you know, conversations that we've had around components on why does the market feel heavy in the vol space, right? Well, it feels like vol is being supplied, and empirically it is, because people can't afford to buy the longer dated stuff anymore. The stuff that you accumulated going into 2020 just doesn't exist. It's not cheap. It's actually quite expensive in most ways, right? You, you could make an argument for a structural change. The more people move to the front, the more they're forced to monetize a hedge when it pays off. That's right. And it's the exact opposite of why, for example, those studies showed the weekly options or the monthly options, like because options decay in an exponential fashion, 
It means your greatest value is realized in the last couple, if you're short that option, it's realized in the last couple of days where it goes from whatever to zero, right? Which is effectively an infinite gain, right? When you do that in the weekly options and you're selling them, you get to do that 52 times, right? And they, they expire and everything else. When you flip that around and you start buying volatility, but you're buying it at those points, you've got to be like crazy disciplined about monetizing, otherwise you're just throwing money away. So let's go and offer some candy to people who survived uh, this wonk fest so far. Um, what's the wrong price? I mean, I'll tell you what I think is the wrong price or maybe the wrong price is the last week, the VIX contracts, like from VIX one to VIX nine, they were 30 and a half all the way out. Mm -hmm. That is extraordinarily strange because you're supposed to have the term surface point to the long-term average, which is called 2021. So usually you get an inversion, so the forwards go down, and when you're VIX is at 12, it goes up. So you're always, that forward's always out at 20, so there's no free lunch. Um, flat term surface at 30 strikes me as being like, what am I missing over here? Uh, what, I mean, what do you think is the wrong price here? Yeah, no, I think I'll, I'll, I'll riff on that because I think you're exactly right. So first of all, usually you have- And give a everyone a trade also, by the way. There you go, right. Usually you have a relationship between the slope of the term structure and the level, right? So if vol's really low, okay, you sh should have pretty steep contango because you figure, hey, I don't know what's gonna happen in a year. There's gotta be risk premium there. And if the world's totally, totally crazy, you don't know what's gonna happen in a year, but probably it's gonna be a little less crazy than it is today. And flat at 30 is, um, is you would typically think at 30 you're going to have more inversion, right? Than you than than a, than a totally flat curve. And the a lot of the place that that's coming from, when you look under the hood and you look at the details, it's that where those medium and longer term VIX futures are trading relative to S and P at the money forward ball is very 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 high. So we lost all of the sellers of VIX. Uh, of, of, we lost all of we the outright the short VIX guys. guys. We lost all the uncapped variance guys. We lost all the convexity providers, right? And that's being reflected in uh, in a very steep term structure of VIX, VIX basis, where again, the, the trading range that we have been in post-COVID has been like the very low end of the range for how expensive VIX complex is relative to S&P is what historically we would have considered as like the most expensive as it ever gets. And then it goes from there to, to twice that. And that's the range that it bounces. So there's a people are try have been trying to use the VIX complex as a hedge, and it's not working very well because it's really expensive and there's no sellers, right? So we get a lot of questions about, um, often from folks who say, hey, my tail hedge isn't working. Why isn't my manager who has all this VIX stuff, he's making a little money, but he's really not making very much money. Uh, and a big part of the answer is, look, we have a slow grindy sell-off. You know, vol has come up, but we're not crashing. There's no huge dynamic that's driving the front end of the VIX term structure way up. And you're already paying a really high price for this stuff, uh, which you know is uh, is is something that you know is just not going to work. <laughs> well, and it's super frustrating to try to explain to people because you you know you cannot change those dynamics. There are tricks that you can use, and again, you know, we're doing some of this at Simplify where we're effectively canceling out a lot of the Vega exposure or volatility exposure in our hedges because I just can't look at a thirty vol and be like, yeah, you know, I think that's going to triple. Right? It's just not a reasonable expectation. Um, so you, you, you basically are signing up in advance that you're not going to get much of a vol response that then changes your strategies. You start doing things like put spreads as compared to an outright put. Right? Yep. Um, and then you see that feeding into skew, which, which is going lower which is going lower and lower and lower. And so eventually those tails, you know, as, as everybody figures this out, you know, you're perversely creating conditions under which somebody is eventually going to say, you know what, I'm going to actually start buying those puts. Yep. Um, we're not quite there yet, but it's it's getting there. Yeah, no, so I think, um, you know, again, to your point, what's wrong? We, we went from a world where, perversely, gamma was pretty cheap on a relative yeah. basis because everybody was selling it, and the wings, at least relative to gamma, were more expensive, right? So you would see, like, iron condor sellers, for example, just having terrible performance because they're selling the thing that's really cheap here and then they're buying back the protection that they need on a, on a relatively expensive basis. And now, if anything, we've sort of flipped that where there's a lot less supply of gamma. Uh, depends on a lot of things, but you're getting a healthy risk premium in, uh, in gamma. But the tails and the wings, both in terms of skew and convexity, are going lower and lower and lower. And it's for a variety of reasons. It's not really performing, right? We're not seeing skew, we're not seeing vol bid to the downside. We're not seeing vol get crushed to the upside. So that's making skew go lower locally. But in the wings, it's getting really low too, right? And so if anything, actually, 
you know, the right way to be positioned um, now is, uh, is, is the opposite of what we were seeing a few years ago, to be on the other side of those flows and dislocations. I, I'd like to go, go on just to help our audience, people who, if you're tuned into the show, I presume you're actually interested in this nonsense. Um, once upon a time, the VIX would be, the VIX is not the at the money vol, okay? The move is the VIX is not at the money. It's all the options added up and discounted back. Um, and so you'd have the VIX being missing two points over the at the money because the puts were way up, but the calls were actually way down. Now you get the VIX trading three, four over at, over at the money vol because not only do the puts go up, but the calls go up also. They skew both ways. You get a, a, a pure smile. What do you think about that? Change is that permanent? Is that temporary? Does that change how you invest uh, in, in, in you know the world? Yep, no, great question. So yeah, that that basis is a lot higher than it used to be. Sometimes we see it five, six, seven these days, and uh, and that's reflected in the price of, of variance. Part of it is is variance supply because we think of what is the VIX. It's actually the calculation for a one month variance swap, and. One month and variant swaps were very popular risk premium products for sellers to say, hey, look, I believe in long-term risk premium, you know, look at X number of years of history. Every once in a while you get tagged pretty bad, but most of the time it works. So I'm gonna collect some premium. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's it's hard to know um, a priori what exactly the risk reward of selling variance is because it's so negatively asymmetric that it all comes down to what's the probability of, of some really, really crazy move, or what about five times that crazy, and is that 10 basis points or one basis point? And none of us have any freaking idea, right? It's impossible to know. And so you had 20, uh, 2020 come along, and uh, you know, short variant strategies gave back like 20 years of P&L, <laughs> and, and as a result, there are no variant sellers. They're gone. Um, the, you know, there used to be huge variant selling out of big, sophisticated pension funds in Europe in Canada, there used to be hedge funds that constantly were supplying this stuff, and it's gone. And that was constantly putting that pressure downward on those wings, and now that now that now that's gone. Well, so that, and, and just to, to again align this with where that all came from, um, and there there are two separate components that I would highlight. There, one is the capped variance trade itself emerged out of two thousand eight, where mm -hmm. the brokers themselves were no longer willing to sell the uncapped yep. variance swap. Right, so. The Goldman Sachs, et cetera, of the world looked at this and said, that's just simply too, too much risk for our regulatory framework. We cannot sell that absolute cap, that, that uncapped variance, right? And they talked everybody basically into buying puts. They're effectively put spreads as compared to puts, right? Into that environment emerged actually ex-Goldman traders who effectively said, well, that's effectively catastrophic reinsurance, right? So we're going to get involved in, in this, right? Um, those guys all blew up in 2020, right? The Canadian pension plans that had direct oversized exposure, why others that were big in that space have now gone away. And because they're literally gone, you can't even, like, you just can't execute in those trades anymore, right? If you wanted to actually buy that, you'd be paying so much for it. It goes right back to this discussion that it, it literally would have to basically be the end of the world for you to make anything appropriate given the number of times that you're going to strike out on that trade. But they will come back. They will come back they eventually. They will come back. No but that bad was the bonds, other... just bad prices. They will come back. So, but there, there is actually, and so this is part of the Volmageddon story, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go back to February 5th, 2018, like, in my analysis, the Fed actually caused those events. And they caused those events by changing the CCAR provisions, the capital adequacy ratio provisions. There was an oversight that existed post the global financial crisis that explained a lot of this stuff, which is when they introduced these regulatory frameworks, the CCAR provisions had a very different risk parameter for being long equities versus being short vol. Hmm. The metric that was used for long equities was an instantaneous 30% drawdown. If you expressed almost the exact same risk premium as a short vol or short variance trade, it was a 10-point jump in the VIX. Right. That's the stress right. scenario that you had drawn there. Those are radically different outcomes, right? 30% down, we're going to 400 VIX. Exactly, <laughs> right? And so, so you ended up in a situation where there was this arbitrage that effectively manifested itself in subsidized short vol, right? You, you know, if you can express this long equity trade as a short vol, vol position, which, again, smart banks can figure out how to do this in a variety of ways synthetically, then you actually had a much lower capital requirement, which means you have a higher return on equity. On February 2nd, 2020, the Fed unexpectedly changes these rules. 
And you and I were both in positions where you, like, you just felt this ripple through the market. All of a sudden, people were calling me, hey, can I buy back that risk that you sold me, uh, you know, that, that you bought from me? I'm like, why? <laughs> and whenever <laughs> somebody asks you that question, the answer is, tell me why, but no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not that order. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you ask, why do you have an axe there, right? But and, and it was literally coming straight from the street. It was not other funds that were trying to source this or anything else. It was the street basically coming out. And in the aftermath of Balmageddon, I mean, again, converting it back into to credit terms, like we were able to sell some of that stuff at an effective yield of like 75%. It was completely insane. Um, but that is part of that coming back in, that supply. Other people were there. Now they're just not, right? They're, they're not. And, and at the same time, everybody is aware of the hedging dynamics. Increasingly, there are structural hedgers that are involved in markets. You know, you've grown as an asset manager. We've grown as an asset manager. And so we have to be very thoughtful about how we're doing it, but that changes the market itself, right? Chris Cole on stage the other day said exactly this. He's like, look, you know, buying flood insurance doesn't change the propensity of floods. But buying stock market insurance actually does change the behavior of the stock market. Yeah. And like as a as a manager, so we run the absolute return hedge funds, but we also run bespoke, very large scale tail hedging programs for clients. And in that kind of a mandate, you have to think very hard about the only way to efficiently hedge tails is to find somebody who's selling too much of some particular type of tail that is a good fit for the risk that you have and sourcing that supply. Because if you just show up in the market in a price insensitive way, buying all the puts uh, indiscriminately, uh, yeah, you, eventually if you and enough people like doing, are, are doing that, you're changing the price, you're changing the, dynam the hedging dynamics in the market. Um, you know, in our case, the um, one thing that has been very helpful is that, that that retail structured product flow has actually continued to grow even yeah. through 2020, despite the big drawdowns in 2020. And it's been driven actually largely out of the US, which is a new phenomenon, right? You've seen ex it, structured products used to be primarily an Asian and You're European You're talking auto callables now, right? Auto callables. Yeah. So you've, we've actually seen the US auto callable market exceed the size of the South Korean market this year, actually late last year for the first time in history. Well, that's the public policy good though. You have corporations who have the balance sheet and have the cash, basically selling the insurance into the market uh, which reduces systemic risk. That's a public policy good. Yeah, it's a That's source stuff. of it's a source of long term supply of, of crash risk. But it suits, it suits both sides. I mean, they, they are the ones who actually can afford the insurance because they actually are the ones who actually want to buy their own stock back because it, it, it alters their balance sheet. Well, it's really retail. Yeah, so that's so so that's not what Ben is referring to here, right? So so the auto callables, the source of the insurance actually is the retail investor. It's the retail investor who's willing to say, okay, I will own this down 60%, but I don't own it down 20%, right? And most retail investors aren't aware of that. That's exactly why Ben is highlighting the growth. When Ben and I actually did our first Real Vision interview four years ago, something like this, our focus was actually exactly on these Asian auto callable markets and the, the source of, you know, effectively synthetic vol that was being provided primarily out of Taiwanese insurance providers, among others. Koreans were big on it as well. Today, that's come into a nascent market in the United States and it's grown extraordinarily fast because the low levels of yield have created the need to offer yield enhancement, right? And we've seen this hit. You and I talked publicly about the dynamics of seeing how this has affected the yield curve in the United States where you had spread products, structured products that were effectively, we're going to take a, we're going to provide you with a multiple, a levered multiple of the twos, ten spread. Well, when that went negative, that floor needed to be hedged, right? And so massive demand to buy twos, right? Um, we saw that play out in the speed of the inversion that we saw earlier this year, right? So I, I would argue that Ben's point though about there being a new group that effectively emerged in the last couple of years is really critically important because they didn't have the blow up experience that in some ways you had in Volmageddon fourth quarter of 2018 and 2020 itself you know, in uh, the U.S. markets, right? So you've been able to present these as, look how wonderful the returns are to these Absolutely. strategies. And it's, a, and it's interesting. I think it's the growth of this market, I think, is, is in part linked to the emergence of very active retail trading in the U.S. over the last few years, right? And the growth of retail option trading. You know, you see, um, you see a tremendous interest in, like, baskets that have tech favorite names and retail favorite names in them, right? right? And super high vol stuff. Super right? high vol stuff. you are selling puts 
in order to create the yield, your selling puts, and one of the most common strategies, this was certainly true in, um, uh, in international markets, a little bit less true in the US, but you literally have like a Korean broker present a list of stocks to people and say, which three do you want to say are not going to go down? Right? No, I, yes. And, and so crazily enough, like how, if, if imagine you're a Taiwanese, you're a Korean, you go through the list and you say, oh, Tesla, I recognize Tesla. That's Elon Musk. It's, you know, a leading company, et cetera. They're selling puts on Tesla, right? What is that going to do? That creates actually a bid for Tesla. Yeah. Now, I was thinking of the auto callable from the corporate side issuing them, the retail structured note side. Those are also, you know, I, I would not call them bad products, by the way. Um, uh, because because those products are are, are involved in, in digital options. Digital options are extraordinarily, um, I won't say expensive, but but high priced, um, just because of the of the. I'm not going to go into this into the nature of them, and 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 retail does not have access to selling or buying a digital option. That's an is the professional product, and so offering a structured note where they disclose. You know, in the documentation, the fair mid-market value and what they're working for. So it's usually, you know, four to six percent, which is not outrageous, by the way, for 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 that kind of access to a digital option. I think is a that's a reasonable risk to take. And as always, you know, sizing is more important than entry level. If you size your your bets properly with these things, I think they're actually rather uh, uh, good trades for retail because the dealer side of managing a digital option book is extraordinarily bothersome. I'll just say that. So um, yeah, it, it, it's not like the, the, the poor retail investors being picked off by the street with these things. I think they're priced relatively fairly and they're giving, uh, both sides have a, have, have a risk to manage. So I, I, I agree with that. I would, so first of all, let's do a couple of quick things. One is when you talk about digital option, just for the audience to make very clear, effectively that's just a super tight put spread, right? It's either in the money or it's out of the money, right? And so that means it's either zero or one in value. Hence digital. The second component of it that you're correct on is just that there's not actually an attempt to sell to retail because you could price it so much richer to retail, right? It's not like you know greedy, rapacious, you know structured products. They used to be that way before Dot Frank. Now you have to go and reveal the mid, what you're working for, everything right. else. It's tightened everything up, so you're actually getting in at a reasonably fair price. You are getting in at a reasonably fair price, but the, the only point that I would make on it is, is that in most situations, even if the docs may actually disclose this, nobody reads the docs. Let's just be totally honest on this, right? And the language that is used is, is very careful, right? It is, this will return X if X happens, right? And if you know Y happens, you're gonna end up losing your money, which is why you then market it with something like, well, here's a list. You get to pick the list. I'm as your, your broker. I'm not gonna pick the stocks that you're going to write this against. Well, there's no dot break in Korea, so that, that, especially in North Korea, they, they don't have any there at all. Not a lot of structured. But I mean, I, I, mean, I, 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 I mean, I'll tell you, I've bought these from my PA, and um, I've never seen any of them coming with saying they're offering a 15 percent, uh, you know, markdown or markup from mid. You know, usually you know, five to six percent, and I don't find it to be all that bad. I mean, I mean, I can actually access professional instruments, and I find this to be a. a, a a very clean way to go and do it, especially uh, with the interest rate ones, where they give you that embedded put option, so so, so your principal's guaranteed. Like, gee, man, this sounds pretty good to me. But that's actually part of it. So, so first of all, again, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And, and the point of picking on structured products is not to make it sound like there's rapacious bankers out there who are doing this, although to your point, they were. Um, and there still are some. But there are still very unique signatures that you can't get away from, right? So when you think about that type of product, as it falls, because it has this zero one dynamic, right? It slowly builds delta in terms of the dealer now has a put to retail, right? And then it passes that point and there's no more hedge, right? So now the dealer has to run out and hedge. And so it creates some of these characteristics that can lead to the vol spikes that we've experienced as you approach those floors. I mean, let's be clear here, once again, kind of wonky, being long a digital option is not like being long a regular option. A regular vanilla option, you're always long convex, you're always long gamma, you're always long with good stuff where you have unlimited gain, limited loss. A digital option, once you go the other way, you're actually short gamma, you're short convex, you're short all the bad stuff. So um, buying digital or selling digital, both of those things are gun to your head scenarios. Uh, if, if, and, 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 and so um, it, it's, it's... Which comes to Mike's point on, it's, you could think of it just like a tight put spread. And of course, a put spread is 
your, your longer, 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 shorter put. Right. Out. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I think to to your point, a lot of the the market impact of, of these kind of products comes in the fact that they're very complex from a risk management perspective on the street when you're issuing them. You're trying to hedge and risk manage them, and uh, and even if you might think five or six percent, gosh, that sounds like a lot of spread, and it's relatively expensive for the retail investor. If you look at a lot of banks' structured product franchises over time, they haven't necessarily really made money. They make money five years out of six, and then and one year out of six, they some. give it all back. Yeah, and we, then we, they try again. I mean, we, we have had conversations with some structured product issuers who, in March 2020, literally saw their entire books evaporate, right? And in some situations, these, um, these products are sold through brokers, right? And in a weird twist, if you think about what happens in many situations where these products actually liquidate, they just return cash. So one of the things that happened in March 2020 was when these structured products wiped out, you didn't necessarily see this wipe out. It actually just showed up as, well, there's more cash in my portfolio all of a sudden if you happen to have issued these things. And that perversely created buying power on the part of retail. Ben, do you mostly traffic in listed, transparent products? Or are you spending a lot of time in, in OTC, kind of more covert, you know, so, ideas. So we do spend most of our time in listed transparent products. I think our view, and that's a change for QVR relative to uh, to the businesses that I'd run before, where we used to trade 80 or 90% OTC. And I think a, a big driving factor there is, you can think of Dodd-Frank and Basel III and what it did to banks' risk appetite to, you know, to 15 years ago, a manager like us, I mean, we could put 10 banks in comp uh, on all kinds of different OTC stuff, and they were happy to trade, and part of it was just the value wasn't even necessarily in the fact that they were losing money trading with us. It was that they needed to be number one on the franchise so that Frank Quattrone made the call to that desk to give them the IPO business, right? And Basel, but that whole world changed, right? Banks can't take risk. They can't hold risk. They definitely don't want to be aggressively trading and taking risk with sharky relative value hedge funds, right? And, but it's not an issue that derivatives markets somehow went away or dried up. It's that, in, especially in equities, it's not as, as true in other asset classes, but that liquidity moved to exchange. If you find this to be a good or a bad thing, I'll tell you that I actually am happier with the way, th I, mean, I am one of the few Wall Street guys who believes Dodd-Frank was a good idea. Um, uh, but I'm also, it's, it, it's forced transparency uh, by being, requiring dealers to go offer a, what is mid, because that used to be really tricky, mm -hmm. and, and um, working for a profit, that's fine and dandy, but but the transparency uh, makes it makes it easier. It, it it makes you feel more comfortable in transacting because you you know what you're paying for the service and you know where the market actually is. It makes me more comfortable to go trade more size and be more active in things. I think it's been a bit a bit a, been a benefit to society. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's. As with everything, there's probably some things you could imagine doing better. I mean, what what did the regulators really, what was their core objective fundamentally? It was, you know, they viewed, they looked back at 2008 and they said, look, this was a systemic global meltdown precipitated by banks taking tons of risk and really complex things and creating interconnected daisy chains of, of, of bombs. Um, we want banks facilitating markets, but we do not want systemic risk associated with this kind of risk taking and they defanged the banks and they you know made it made made it these days a junior trader at you know Goldman can get fired for taking a small small loss on inventory that was deemed oh that was is that really inventory or is that kind of a prop trade right so it's just a night and day the amount of risk that's held in portfolios warehoused you see you know and you see it in how markets gap when normally the street if there's a, a bunch of one-way selling in some tier two product, normally the street would have just been accumulating, bidding lower, taking on some inventory. Now it just gets sprayed straight into the inter-dealer broker market. That's really right. true. I'll tell you, my daughter worked at a, one of the large banks on, on the option desk for a while. And if she got hit on a million of Vega 330, it was a fire drill to A, get rid of it, or B, write the memo upstairs to say why we are carrying it overnight to facilitate customer business. But I mean, you know, it, it was uh, you know, that, that, you know, three to four o'clock, um, uh, Trading was very challenging because if a big trade came in, like it wasn't clear what you're going to do with it. Totally. Uh, is that good for public policy? I'm 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 not clear on that, but it, it it did change the dynamic from how I used to operate once upon a time. Yeah, no, it very much did, and I think we got as a result we got somewhat more 
fragile and gappier markets and gappier liquidity. That helps you though, because you're gonna get the call at 345 to buy that piece of, of, of business. Yeah, for, for folks like us, it's not a bad thing, right? Um, we, we find, so first of all, having a lot of transparent activity on exchanges where, you know, I think you get this question a lot, how do you feel about liquidity these days? I think liquidity is worse than it's ever been if you're a large instantaneous liquidity withdrawer from the market. If you need to show up and say, I need 10 billion of this right now, what's the price, get it done. Liquidity is actually quite good if you're in more of a market facilitator role where what you wanna do is accumulate inventory on a particular position, but you're patient and you're willing to represent your interest at mid-market and participate in the volume and natural flow of the market, then you actually you get into and out of positions very efficiently and very cheaply and very big size, which at much lower transaction costs than you might have you know, won in the, in the past. So I think it's, it's a very good thing. It's a different market than it was. Um, you know, do we really need banks out there slinging massive risk in, in prop books to you know, make society work? It's not obvious to me. Banks are, look, banks are, are, are con Edison now. Um, <laughs> which by the way makes sense because we're a financial world, a financial economy with massive debt, which is not a bad thing, but running, we need plumbing. And the plumber's gotta be you know, watched. And so uh, that's okay by me. But part of what also has transpired is, I mean, it's not just Dodd-Frank, right? We went from an environment in which post Glass-Steagall repeal, we had commercial banks and we had you know, uh, trading banks, right? Effectively brokers. And the two were never supposed to meet Post-1999, we put them together, and what we ended up with are banks, right? We don't have the brokerage firms in the same way, and we've got the players like Citadel and others that have grown into that role, right? So, Well, they're now the, they're now the new investment banks. They're private capital at risk, and the investors in them, they know what they're doing. I mean, look, t taking apart Glass-Steagall was, was, was like ground zero for uh, the, the entire mess. So. I think it was a critical component to it. it. There's definitely a different aspect of regulating and monitoring, and we've seen challenges associated with that. But I, I, I think there are pros associated with Dodd-Frank, by the way, to go back to your point of, of how people should think about it. And I think Ben actually did a good job of articulating some of the reasons or some of the ways that you can take advantage of that. I do think the general um, attitude towards Dodd-Frank has put way too much of an emphasis on the little wrinkles in regulation, right? Absurd things like a CCAR provision giving rise to Volmageddon. You know, there's ways that that can be accomplished. We're gonna move in five point increments. We're gonna go from 10 to 15 to 20 to 25. And three years from now we want, or two years from now we want your books in order, right? That would have had absolutely no impact. And it would have been a remarkable way to handle it. And instead it was like, Oh yeah, that was an oversight. Let's flip it. Just fix it today. Yeah, well, Dodd Frank because of a sledgehammer to kill a fly. Um, but the reality is, is that you know Al Greenspan was just dead wrong with his Ayn Rand view that senior management of firms would do the right thing for their company. Um, no, they, they well, he was kind of right. They did the right thing for themselves. So the head of my ex company that went belly up, I mean, did maneuvers to go maximize his personal, you know, W two, not for the firm's or society's W two. So I mean. Uh, and, and, and when people won't do the right thing, then the government's got to come in and make them do the right thing. Well, that was part of the, the argument behind it, and we're actually running into a different topic that would be an entirely different dynamic, right? But effectively, what you're describing is, is that in many ways, the new prop desk trader um, has become the senior management who's saying some variant of, you know, I, I, I want to get paid a ridiculous amount of money. Um, it just leads to different behavior, right? The incentive structures towards growing in scale, growing in magnitude, in the lines of business that they dominate, and giving up the rest, right? And you know, hats off to Ken Griffin at Citadel and to Jeff Yaz at Susquehanna and all these guys who have stepped in as the new investment banks and market makers. And, and by the way, a lot of hedge funds are doing it as well. You know, to your point, the model that works is effectively you saying Dodd-Frank has prevented them from doing this, therefore we become the warehouse. Yep, no, that's right. I mean, ultimately, the way we think about absolute return business, especially, is it's all about understanding dislocations in markets, and dislocations in markets come from liquidity mismatches, from supply-demand mismatches, from the kinds of things that, you know, ultimately, banks used to be really on the front lines of. But or as, regulation. Or, regula or Regul regulation. Regulatory arbitrage is always the best. And, but then as banks become more and more like agency brokers and, and trying, to, trying to line up two sides of the trade or trying to get a trade and just spit it out into the IDB, 
right? The role of you know private capital in, in hedge funds and market making businesses uh, it steps up to be those liquidity providers as as markets gap. Yeah, I, I I think that's right, and I think that's actually a great place for us to wrap up because it does effectively start to address all of these different components that we have been discussing, right? So the role of dealers in some ways has changed radically. It's not the dealers. When you were at Merrill, Merrill was the dealer. Now we're talking about Citadel, Susquehanna, a whole bunch of other players that don't look anything like Merrill. They don't have the diversified lines of businesses. They don't have these things, and they're damn good at their jobs, but they are absolutely in a very different role than we've seen before, right? Um, and at the same time, firms like Ben's at QBR are in a position to, if they can have patient capital, if they can have good investors, which fortunately years like 2020 contribute to, um, you end up in a really wonderful position where you can accumulate a lot of this stuff very, very cheaply. But it is not, it's not the same market it was two years ago, that's for sure. Absolutely. That's a good place to wrap up. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks again to EQD for pulling together a live conference, which for our space Fantastic. Is, it's been really nice to actually get to sit down with everybody, and we look forward to doing this again soon. It was really wonderful to have you on, Ben. This Thank was you. great, guys. Mike Harley, thanks again. Thank you. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.